Hello, you are listening to Football Road Trip. Gear up and get ready to tour world football history because that's what we do. My name is Luke Power and coming up today, we'll be debating whether the Bundesliga is a farmer's league. What's he done in his managerial career in England? <laughs> it's nowhere near on the level of the Premier League. Preston North End become the first of our many club features. Everything's named after him, he's such an iconic man. But you cannot say that he is a one-club man. And we'll be pretending to know anything about the 1930 World Cup, its scandals, its horrors, and all of its sexual temptations. Argentina were winning 2-1 and they all sat around the dressing room, looked at each other and said, we're going to get killed here. Joining us today we have two stellar guests, Jack Goodwin and Sean Byrne. How are you, Jack? I'm excellent, thank you, Luke. How are you? I'm very good. It's good to see your face. It's been a long time no see and I can see that you've got quite shaggy facial hair. <laughs> I have, I have. I'm, uh, I'm getting the lockdown look, Luke. Well, somebody who's on a bit of the cleaner side of life, as I can see from our grainy image on the screen, Sean Byrne. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'll take that compliment nicely. I know you look like it's a, a £2 million haircut from a professional Bundesliga player. And the Bundesliga <laughs> is where we will be starting tonight because the Bundesliga in the past few weeks has, has been back. Uh, the subject of some controversy with COVID-19, but it has been entertaining, absolutely. And Bayern Munich are steaming ahead if we thought that the title race was going to be close. Well, it isn't anymore. They're currently seven points ahead. Jack, how do you assess Bayern Munich under Hansi Flick? They've put in some really impressive performances. Yeah, well, they've certainly been strong. I mean, October, it was Nico Kovac who was sacked as Bayern Munich manager after a shocking 5-1 loss to Eintracht Frankfurt. And when Hansi Flick was appointed on a caretaker, uh, I did think it was a bit of a poor appointment by Bayern in terms of, you know, they have one of the strongest squads in the world, the one the biggest clubs in the world, they would be able to attract um, a, a bigger terms manager. But Hansi Flick, who, who has worked under Nico Kovac and worked under the majority of his career at Joachim Lowe uh, with the German national side, has come in and absolutely revolutionised Bayern Munich. They've been a completely different team and they've come, turned around from where they were when Kovac got sacked, which they were fifth, and now they look set for their eighth league title in succession. Yeah, and with 23 games, one out of 26, that is the best win percentage in Bayern history. Sean, that's even better than when you play FIFA on beginner. Well, I wouldn't take that. My FIFA skills have got pretty good over this quarantine, I'd say. But yeah, Bayern Munich's record has been impressive, but it does bring up the conversation about how competitive is the league they are currently in. Oh, yeah, because recently, I mean, right, this so annoys me, this phrase, but recently, and we've seen it with the French League as well, I've seen a few people call Bundesliga a farmer's league. And I'm just sorry, that is absolutely ridiculous. It is easily one of the best three leagues in the world, even if Bayern are steaming towards eight titles in a row. That's just because they're so brilliant and one of the best five sides in the world not because the rest of the country are part of some farmers union and Sean what's your view on that because you said beforehand that you're caught up in this hashtag of the farmers league the farmers league term came about for league one it was strictly over league one when PSG were dominating they were the only side to have any money it became a joke no one what no one outside of France cared about league one and the only time they watched French football was when it was in European action whether that be Champions League or Europa League. The German League, I believe, is swiftly becoming more and more like that with Bayern Munich having much more money and no one seems to be able to compete with them. But 
especially you mentioned before the podcast about how Dortmund's board doesn't want to be putting any more money in after the big signing of Haaland. It's like, what's the point in doing one small investment and then just giving up on it? They've finally started to make progress and it's like, right, we've given you a little inju- a little injection. You go do the business from there. I think it, it could become a farmer's league. See, I think the feeling is that they've given him enough spending now in their opinion, to have a platform to go and win the league. Jack, do you feel like Dortmund have closed the gap recently? And do you think that they could get back to winning the titles like they did under Klopp? They haven't closed the gap, um, but the board have given them money. Dortmund, over the last three years, has spent £300 more than Bayern Munich have spent in the last three years. So, Borussia Dortmund, they have been back. Players like Haaland come into club. He's not the only one they signed. They signed multiple players, you know, bringing back Mats Hummels and bringing Axel Witzel and Emre Chan to club. They've spent a lot of money and they haven't closed the gap. I'm not putting the blame on Favre's daughter. I would rather say that the Bayern Munich have just, just, are just that good. They are just that much better. And like uh, Sean said, eight successive titles for Bayern Munich, it could lead to people saying that Bundesliga is a farmer's league. But if we're approaching three seasons now of the Premier League where Manchester City and the last two where Liverpool have been so far ahead, are we trying to say that, oh, the Premier League is a farmer's league all of a sudden? I don't think it can no. just be defined by See, one team doing really well. This is, where, this is where my argument comes in for why the Bundesliga is much more of a farmer's league than the Premier League. Because the, the idea behind the farmer's league came about because the skill level of League One was so much lower. And having watched some of these games during quarantine, I'd argue that the quality is so low in comparison to... The Premier League. I mean, the, the first match I watched was Union Berlin versus Bayern Munich, and I had <laughs> never seen a more less competitive, competitive match than that. It was it was shocking to watch, and I'd honestly rather football hadn't returned than I had to go through ninety <laughs> minutes of that again. And what what I would argue, Luke, Bayern Munich are maybe not on the level of your Barcelona's, your Man City's, your Liverpool's, or Real Madrid's, but they are on the level of your top. Well, better than your Tottenham's, Man United's, Much Chelsea's. Better. Um, yeah, much better. They've got a fantastic squad. And, and uh, Borussia Dortmund are a good side. I think where they are lacking, every team in the Premier League, every team in the Premier League, no matter how bad they are, so Norwich, bottom of the league in the Premier with 21 points so far this season, I think they would survive in the Bundesliga, they'd survive in Ligue 1, they'd survive in La Liga, they'd survive in Serie A. I think, that is, I think that's the difference. The Premier League's bottom half teams are much stronger. They're much more financially backed than, than not only Bundesliga, but Serie A and, to an extent, La Liga. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the revenue from TV rights is absolutely enormous. Um, unless you're from Saudi Arabia, where they just pirate the games and get them for free. Um, but I think <laughs> the, the Bundesliga models itself on, like the French League, on being a country where the young players are able to grow and to have that opportunity. And increasingly, we're seeing this is a destination for the greatest talents, Haaland, Sancho, Alfonso Davies, Renato Sanchez, when he moved a, a few seasons ago. It's a place where they feel, without the same scrutiny of the Premier League, that they can turn up and develop. And we, we can't forget also, these are getting 40,000 plus fans every week. We're saying that the clubs are competing at a lower level down the table, but every single year the Bundesliga is drawing in the most fans. To their stadiums. I think These are the big clubs. These aren't 
when Bournemouth get promoted to the Premier League with 12,000 people, no disrespect to Bournemouth. I think no one's, I don't think anyone's suggesting that the players, especially at the top level, aren't good. I mean, you mentioned Sancho, you mentioned Haaland, you mentioned uh, Davis, Coleman. These are all fantastic players. But I think the point which comes in, and you, you say Bournemouth have a smaller attendance, but I think that's due to the Premier uh, The English football is more diverse in terms of we have so many more football clubs than other countries of mm. the highest standard of fourth division better than any other fourth division. So it's more spread out. So not everyone that lives down south uh, near Bournemouth going to support Bournemouth and yeah. end up supporting other teams. Um, point I'll bring in is Fortuna Dusseldorf. Uwe Rossler is, is the manager of Dusseldorf. Yeah. What's he done in his managerial career in England? He did well in League One with Brentford. He then moved to Leeds in the Championship, failed with them and was sacked. Was sacked with Wigan in the relegation zone. So his next move was called Fleetwood and he was sacked at Fleetwood with Fleetwood in the League One relegation zone. So we're talking about a manager that realistically is a League One manager. And he was, his last job, he was in the relegation zone of League One. He has now been appointed in the top division of Germany to manage a top division side. Is that not showing the gulf between the two divisions? I, I think they look beyond simply, oh, you know, you've been sacked, therefore you're a bad manager. I don't know if you can directly compare. Would, course- can I also make the point that one of the top teams in England, arguably the most backed team in the world, Manchester United, Got to have a failed manager at Cardiff and then a Norwegian league manager who they brought in at the top of the English game. They are putting more emphasis on the youth players with Nagelsmann coming through. He, with um, Dominic Tedesco at Schalke uh, a couple of seasons ago, he had something like an engineering degree, but they put the faith in him because he'd you know, worked hard in the coaching school, he'd won his badges and he'd earned his right to be there. And I don't think you can just yep. point to results. I understand, yeah, the reputation... But also, we were Russell, we're not forgetting, you know, has a lot of football heritage himself. And just because one or two jobs didn't go his way doesn't mean he can't be a good, an inspiring manager. Yeah, it's a fair point. It is a fair point. But I think that's a difference. Um, as far to my knowledge, Rosler is not a club legend at Dusseldorf. Ole originally was brought in as a club legend to just steer the ship. He wasn't brought in to become a long-term Manchester United fan, but because of the Ole's at the wheel sort of success, he got handed the job. A point I want to bring in, though, Luke and Sean, is that, again, I don't think Bundesliga is a farmer's league, but the defence setups, the defensive systems in Bundesliga are just, with no disrespect to them, are just so much weaker. We're seeing games on a regular basis that are 6-1, 5-1, results that you'd see in the 1930 World Cup, not in 2020, where we Southampton got beat 9-0. Well, yeah, but that was a one-off. That was <laughs> how, many, how many other times, how many other times this season have we seen results where there's been a gulf of five or six goals? We've seen City beat Watford 8-0. We've seen Southampton in get beat 9-0. In our cup final, Watford got smashed. That, supposedly one of the best two teams in the country then, Watford. But we're seeing this on a regular basis, Luke. We're seeing the amount of goals. I think points at goals per game basis, Bundesliga score more goals, mm. which you're looking from the outset than, than Premier League, La Liga, Serie A. But you're looking on the outset, oh, we've got good attack. But really, I mean, 
if you want to see poor defending, just tune in and watch Werder Bremen versus Bayer Leverkusen and watch Werder Bremen's hopeless attempts at trying to defend set pieces because they were horrendous that day. So are we saying that overall we think there's some really, really talented farmers who've managed to make it away from their pressurising families who wanted them to go into tilling the crops, but then we've also got some lesser talented farmers? I think the way I see it is it's not as bad as league earned. It's nowhere near on the level of the Premier League. And as long as Bayern Munich continue to dominate on the European scene and in the domestic league, it, it, it's just gonna, that reputation is just going to keep growing and growing. Where is it for you, Sean, though? So you've got Premier League number one, Liga, and I assume around fifth. What, so is Bundesliga above La Liga and Serie A? La Liga's second for me. But I am biased because I do. I've always loved Spanish football, and the difficulty for me is that I actually believe the overall quality of Italian football is better. However, I don't personally find that the standard, stereotypical style of Italian football very attractive. The defending, Ace Milan have sort of tried to get rid of that in past years, but I still don't. I wouldn't tune into any of those three leagues to be honest with you. If there was an ch- opportunity to watch a league two match or a Bundesliga derby, I'd be watching the League 2 match. And I think that says it all, really, about the quality and where I stand. But if, if there was a ranking, it would go Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, and League 1, which I do believe UEFA would also say. I'd agree with. I'd completely agree with that. Yeah, I would place Bundesliga over Serie A. Uh, it's one of those things that it swings back and forth. 20-odd years ago, Italian football was watched by people around the world and they had a show for it on the TV. I don't think we can just say, oh, the Premier League now is here to stay as the number one competition. And do I think that Bundesliga could have a resurgence and maybe even be the best league in the world in 20 years? Possibly it could be. At the moment, I do agree, I wouldn't place it at an English level. However, if we're going to say that England, that there are many more teams, don't we think that, it's slightly easier to reach the top in England and that you see so many teams do well, like Sheffield United, Leicester winning the Premier League title, Burnley making the Europa League, whereas you don't see the elite being cracked as much in the Bundesliga. So we do, do we think there's just a bigger gulf between the big sides and the small sides? Or... Um, I think that gulf is definitely getting bigger at the moment in the English leagues. Um, I think, you know, your ones like Leicester City, are a huge surprise. That's it. It's not a fluke because I don't want to disregard what they did, but it's unbelievable what they did. Um, Sheffield United, you mentioned, yeah, I, I think it's just your your English bottom half teams. So your Sheffield United, who you would expect to come in and struggle for relegation, are able to do that because they have a bigger backing behind them. They can go in the January transfer window and spend twenty million on Sander Burge. Newcastle, who are normally fending off relegation, can spend £40 million on Hoffenheim's best striker. Here's a question, then, for both of you. Where do you think that Leicester City title-winning team would have finished if they had played like that in the Bundesliga? If that, if that Leicester City team is in the Bundesliga right now, playing the, the exact way they did in that Premier League year, where do they finish? Yeah, no, that's a difficult question. I think that... In the English Premier League, a lot of the weaker sides 
are very much, we're going to go for it. This might be our only opportunity to be in this league. We're going to stay here and we're going to play a high line. We're going to play dynamic football. We're going to have our centre-backs running up the wing exactly like Sheffield United. Whereas the attitude in the Bundesliga isn't quite the same. And okay, I, I know we see Newcastle deploying five at the back, but a lot of the lower ranked sides in the Bundesliga are very defensive. Um, I know Union Berlin, you, you mentioned Sheffield United spending, I think they spent about £6 million in uh, the summer. And obviously they recognise our weaknesses. So I feel that if you're looking specifically at Jamie Vardy's pace, I don't think he would actually be able to exploit that in the same way in the Bundesliga, simply because against the weaker sides, they're much more happy to sit off. Well, they let in a lot more goals, don't they? Regardless of whether they sit off or not. They do, but Jamie Vardy, it was amazing to see Danny Drinkwater could just play the ball over the top every single time and he'd have 40 yards of space to run into and smash in a half volley. But I, I don't see that happening as much in the, the Bundesliga. Thing... I think the thing about the 2015-16 season, Sean, was that every single top team seemed to have a disastrous season. So Chelsea won the season beforehand, were then somehow fending off relegation instead of where they should have been. Um, Manchester United fell. The only team that actually did quite well for themselves was Arsenal. Um, Tottenham did all right, but neither of them were able to take advantage. And that's something that we've seen in the Bundesliga this year, especially with how poorly Bayern started. Um, Dortmund, Gladbach, Leipzig, they've all been inconsistent. Leipzig have drawn the last four yeah, drawn the last four home games. So that year Leicester took advantage of that. In the Bundesliga, we've not been able to see a Gladbach or a Dortmund or a Leipzig take advantage of Bayern's failure. So I don't see no reason why Leicester wouldn't have finished at least in the top two. That's where I agree with you. That Premier League season was so unique because all the big teams failed as well. It wasn't just Leicester's success. It was the fact that everyone seemed to be slipping up and struggling. And that's where in the Bundesliga you don't get that excitement because it's just all so much taken for granted. A bit like it has been for Liverpool this season. Like When they step on the pitch, they're going to win. And whilst in the Premier League, I know it's hard to say this season because Liverpool have dominated, you're much more likely to get that underdog victory than you are in the Bundesliga. Yeah, overall, I think we can agree it's not as strong a quality as the Premier League. However, in my personal opinion, Farmers League is just a ridiculous term used by 13-year-olds who use laughing face emojis. I use laughing face emojis, to be fair. So. Oh, that's only because I'm immensely funny. <laughs> right. Is it time to move on? Is it time to take a step back in time? I think it is. I think it is. I think so. Um, we need to don our flat caps because if we were playing in the Bolivia side of the 1930 World Cup, that's exactly what we would have been doing. I think about half their teams wore hats in the games that they were playing. And the 1930 World Cup, just to introduce it before we get into the discussion, is so far removed from the modern notion of the World Cup that we have today. Um, Jules Rimet, who was the president of FIFA at the time, decided that the world needed a new competition to decide who the best team in the world was. Two months before the competition, no European teams had signed up. They were incensed that Uruguay had been picked as the host nation and said, basically, we can't be bothered to go there. After all, it was a two and a half week journey by boat. However, eventually they did scrape together four European teams and we saw a scandalous tournament. Uruguay, who had won the uh, Olympics for the past two times, 
ended up winning in the end. However, they were without their star goalkeeper because he had been removed from the squad for sneaking out of the hotel room and having a bit of an affair with a mystery blonde lady, which just goes to show <laughs> the professionalism of the players. And Uruguay in the final benefited from a policeman kicking the ball back onto the pitch when it had gone out from which they scored. It was absolutely crazy. Jack, do you just want to talk a bit about how the teams got there, how the idea came about? So like you mentioned, Jusery May wanted there to be a competition to decide who the best football team were. Um, so they all got on the Conte Verde. They all got on the ship other than Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, who joined late to the party, had to make their own way there in spectacular scenes. They ended um, up on a mail ship. They did. I don't think Yugoslavia were actually originally going to go until the remaining newly appointed King Carol II um, <laughs> persuaded the Yugoslavian president to take their team. And Yugoslavia went with all these Serbian players as the Croatians refused to play. And they went with a side of 21 years old. That is something yeah. that uh, you, 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 the average age of the squad being 21, you just wouldn't see nowadays. Yeah, it's weird to see how little interest there was. Like you said, King Carol of Romania. Um, he, he was a bit of a playboy king, by the way. He was known for having quite a hedonistic lifestyle and he was an eventual dictator. But he, he was the one who persuaded his team to go. But a lot of teams just weren't interested. And actually, a lot of players couldn't go. I don't know if you know, and Sean will bring you into the discussion. Um, Lucien Laurent, who was the first ever goal scorer in the World Cup, he scored for France in a 4-1 win over Mexico. He nearly didn't go because France couldn't pay for his time off work from Peugeot. So I think the overriding theme is that there was a lack of professionalism at the tournament, would you say? Well, yeah, but I saw you mention before about um, the, I can't remember who you said, went off and um, had an affair with a blonde lady. I'd argue that you You'd also get that in these the World Cups nowadays. So I wouldn't say that was an example of less professionalism. Oh, yeah, OK. Um, but it, it, it was different times then. Football it wasn't the business that it's become now. And everyone did literally have farmers' jobs and different jobs. So it was obviously... To even start a competition as amazing as we all know and love now so long ago, I think it's amazing. Obviously, it wasn't anywhere near the standard we have now, but I think the whole story behind it is just bizarre and fascinating. Yeah, it, that, that first goal that was scored was scored in front of a 1,000 people. And to think the first, well, it was the joint first two games started at the same time. 1,000 people were packed into this tiny stadium in Montevideo, the Uruguayan capital. Little did they know, Jack that it would go on to be one of the greatest competitions in the world. No, little did they know um, that they were witnessing history and we're going to see a strange World Cup at our next one, the 2022 World Cup, which is going to be messing up with our domestic seasons as it's going to be played around the Christmas period. Um, so that could, that could be the, uh, not the, the modern-day equivalent of the 1930 World Cup in terms of how different it's going to be. Mm. That's an interesting point, actually. Do you think at the time they knew how incredible it was going to be? What do you reckon? Travel wouldn't have been that big back then, would it? So for all these nations to come together in Uruguay and play each other, they must have known they were on something big. 
That's actually a really interesting point. I think there was the intention that, yes, it would be carried forward, but they didn't treat the individual tournament as being super important in their personal lives. I know that the, the Argentina captain, Manuel Ferreira, actually missed the second game of the tournament because he returned home to take a law exam. It just goes to show they were kind of balancing this moment of creating football's greatest achievement with just their personal lives. I mean, we, we saw managers of the teams being referees in the tournament as well. Actually, one referee ended a game after 84 minutes. Apparently, the, t- the two sides were very unhappy. France were through to score on goal and he ended the game early. So even if they did know that they were going to create something incredible, I just don't think they were that bothered about it being neat and tidy, if you know what I mean. No, it, it certainly was lacking. But, I mean, you can't blame them from, from their standpoint. They, they, were, they, were, they had nothing to copy off. If, obviously, the Nations League now, uh, which has been introduced by UEFA, you know, that's a bit more structured, makes a bit more sense, even though it is, yes, it is granted, uh, complicated. But they've had, they've, they've been able to base it off the World Cups, the Champions Leagues, the UEFA Cups, the Euros and stuff. They've been able to base it off previous competitions. Well, this was the first international tournament, so they were the flag bearer uh, for it. But what, what I found interesting is how they carried on the tradition of have it, having it every four years. Like for something that was so unorganised in its first instalment, I, I find it quite interesting how they stuck to that. Obviously, other than the World War, they stuck to that format of playing it every four years. Yeah, especially with the importance of the Olympics, because that was kind of seen as the marker of who was the best team in the world. And I couldn't actually find in my research kind of how important it was seen around the world for whoever had won. All I know is that the Guardian wrote a article shortly after um, and they devoted a single paragraph um, to the final and they got the score wrong <laughs> which just goes to show that they didn't seem at least in England we seemed to have some arrogant attitude that we were the best team in the world we refused to go we'd withdrawn from FIFA a few years before and refused our invite angrily and the, the Manchester Guardian specifically said that Uruguay and Argentina were finalists in the so-called World Championships, which I think goes to show the, the attitude in England, at least, that if we're not part of it, then surely it can't be the best. It's like a flashback to Euro 2008. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, no, one, no one cared about that in England, did they? I, I, you know, I wasn't into football that much then. And the, the horrible story is that I actually missed the 2005 Champions League final huge Liverpool fan, my dad was saying, Luke, Luke, you need to watch it, you need to watch it. But I just wasn't interested. I was just playing with my Lego. And you so, were only four, Luke, so I'm not four five, still, that's, that's a huge regret for me. That <laughs> the greatest game in Liverpool's 21st century, and I, I ignored it for a few Lego bricks on the floor. <laughs> right, do we want to move on to the final, the World Cup final? Finally, we make it. After 13 teams battle it out in the groups, we make it past our two semi-finals where Argentina dispatch USA 6-1 and Uruguay dispatch Yugoslavia 6-1. And the estimates vary. Some attendance figures say 68,000 people were there. Some say 93,000 people were there two hours before kickoff, a packed out stadium. Jack, what on earth went down on that fateful day? 
Well, obviously, the two uh, South American teams made it to the final, uh, Uruguay being the home nation. Uh, all the fans that turned up, I'm assuming all Uruguayans are baying for Uruguay and hoping that Uruguay would come away with the victory. And at half-time, actually, Argentina were leading 2-1, which was interestingly played with their match ball because they played the two halves with different match balls because the uh, Argentinian coach and the Uruguay coach argued over which ball to play with. So, the, in the end, the referee, uh, in his suit, decided that Argentina would play the first half of their ball and Uruguay would play the second half of their ball. And then, according to one of the players, one of the players that sadly passed away in 2010, mm. um, actually said that at half-time, Argentina were winning 2-1. And they all sat around the dressing room, looked at each other and said, we're going to get killed here. If we beat Uruguay in their home nation, in their backyard, we're going to be murdered. So it's whether that played a part to, in their minds and their performance uh, as they ended up losing that second half 3-0 to Uruguay with the score finishing 4-2 Yeah, you mentioned they thought they were going to be murdered they probably thought the same at home because there were riots in Buenos Aires and there were mobs throwing stones at buildings it, it seemed like it's such a big rivalry and the passion of football over there, Sean is absolutely huge and it's a big rivalry today um, Uruguay-Argentina Well, you see it in... Um... Back in South South American football, overall is passionate, isn't it? I mean, I for one wouldn't want to be South American and messing up, um, losing a World Cup final. As we saw the unfortunate passing of Andre Escobar, I believe it was, who was murdered after he missed a penalty for Colombia in the World Cup. Not quite sure what year that was, but South American response to losing the first ever World Cup between two rivals, I certainly wouldn't want to be. On the well, on the winning or the losing side in that in that situation. Yeah, Argentina had injured. I think it was four USA players in the semi-final. One mm. came away with broken legs. One lost about half of his teeth. It, it was brutal, absolutely brutal. And I think, as you quite rightly say, it still is today. Jack, do you how, how do you do you think that the identity of South American football is changing, or do you think that they stick to that core value of brutality, if we can put it that way? It depends what sort of players you're talking about, because if you're talking about South American flair players like Neymar, the, the, the player that everyone mocks that likes to go down so easily, or if you're comparing him to a, a terrier bull like Javier Mascarano, who will get stuck in with no qualms, with no second thought. He will get stuck in. He will put his uh, body on the line. But it's interesting. I mean, you say Uruguay injured four USA players, one with a broken leg, one with teeth out. You can't do that nowadays. It's, no. it's, not, it's slowly becoming a non-contact sport because the beauty would of the slide tackle is now being taken out of the game. Would you like to see the return of broken legs and missing teeth in football, Jack? Um, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. <laughs> But I'd rather see a clean tackle be celebrated rather than be sent off. A middle ground, a middle ground in between it all. Someone where players don't lose vital limbs but can also go in for a nice sliding tackle. Yeah, I'm not left wing, I'm not right wing, I'm right down the middle. (laughs) That's good to hear. I think on a a parting note as we leave 1930 behind, and it's very sad because, you know what, I've really enjoyed this. I think all we'll say is that the referee only agreed to referee the final after he was promised that him and the linesman would have a mounted 
armed police escort away from the ground, which I think just goes to show it wasn't just the players that they were scared of. It was also the fans who could get really quite riled. And finally, coming into the final section of the show, we know Sean and Jack are Preston North End fans. And well, who else are we talking about but Preston North End? And we're going to start off with the Invincibles. And if you didn't know, Preston North End originally weren't a football club. They were actually a cricket club. And they followed that endeavour for 17 years until they realised, hey, we're actually quite good with our feet, not our hands. And they helped to found the first football league. And Jack, did they win that first football league? They certainly did, Luke. And um, the, they didn't just win it. They stayed undefeated and won the division with zero losses in 22 games. It was a, an incredible feat that only one team in the top division history has been able to match since then. And poor Liverpool, Luke, weren't able to do it. Oh, that was <laughs> a game, honestly. My head was in my hands. Oh, it was so horrible to see. You know what? I, this has been the best season to be a Liverpool fan. But there's been some really horrible moments because you don't realise how big the drop is when you lose a game. It is the worst feeling after you've won them all. And But as you rightly said... Maybe one day. On, <laughs> they went and won all of their games in the league and the cup. But what we don't realise is that they actually had incredible longevity and fitness. These players, they also played 42 friendlies in that same season. They played 70 games in the season before. We like our modern sports science, but obviously these players must have had something about them some sort of hardiness if they were able to play that many games. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a completely different game back then, wasn't it? We didn't have all these, the physiotherapy, the technology that we see now that players go in, cut the ice baths to recover all the muscles. That wasn't around back then. You, they got on with it and clearly, I mean, you could say that it was tough for the players, but it must have also made the games easier because everyone was struggling in the same way. Everyone was tired and... It, it, it's an incredible to think about nowadays if that was still going on. I mean, you see, with the delayed season, people are struggling to think how players are going to be playing more than two times a week. It's mind-blowing that that could be happening. So it's unbelievable that that's how many they managed to fit in. Yeah, it's good you say that because um, there, there was one period where they went up to Scotland and they played four games in five days, which I think is a, a monumental achievement. Um, manager William Sudell of the Invincibles. He wasn't just a manager. Like you said, there were no physios, so he ended up being the massager. He was the groundsman. And he even scored a hat-trick against Reading when they beat them 18-0 in the Cup. <laughs> so if squad rotation was limited, you could just bring on your manager and seemingly he could swat aside any team. Jack, what is among Preston fans nowadays, what is the legacy of the Invincibles? Do you talk about them a lot? Is it a distant memory that not even a memory is it just a distant theme that nobody cares about I don't know or do you have a lot of pride um we certainly have pride uh us Presterians because you know we come up against teams with illustrious history we come up against Nottingham Forest uh who have won two back-to-back Champions League trophies we come up against teams like Derby County Leeds United huge huge football clubs and you know, when they ask, oh, why well, was your history? You say, we, we are history. We were the first team to ever, to ever win the first division. We were the first ever Invincibles. Um, and you can see that with the stand being named after it. I mean, no one goes on about William Sudell, the manager, or any particular uh, 
pressing off end player from those times because no one was around back then. But um, the team was seen as a working class team that did the town proud. And I think that has stuck with Preston North End throughout the majority of their history. And I'd say definitely now it is a, not a working class team, but it is a working class team in terms of players have come from lower divisions and um, maybe not the backgrounds that some have, maybe have come from Manchester United's academy, but have been dropped at a young age. Um, And, you know, we're not signing big name stars and apparently... According to history, that's what our invincible side was too. We were a working class team and I think we've stuck to those roots ever since. Yeah, I mean, it's good that you mentioned the working class bit, Jack, because I really think that does resonate. And if we're going to talk about the working class roots of Preston North End, then who better than Tom Finney playing in the 40s and the 50s, born just a couple of streets away from Deepdale. And he was nicknamed the Preston Plumber because his dad insisted that he does not take up Preston's pro contract, but no, he completes his plumbing apprenticeship and he works as a plumber in the 1950s, 50, 60 years later, alongside his Preston games. Every Preston North End fan knows who Tom Finney is. Heard stories about him from grandparents, relived his magical football. He's, He's a hero and I don't think there'll ever be a player quite like him at Preston North End again. He has a statue outside the stadium, doesn't he, Jack? He does, and uh, it's a, a statue that all personal fans know about and love. And I think, like Sean mentioned, everything's named after him. There's a football club named after him. The university sports centre's named after him. There's pubs named after him. There's beers named after him. There's a statue. There's a stand named after him. At Bamber Bridges Football Stadium's named after him. Everything's named after him. He's such an iconic man for Preston fans. The thing I love about Tom Finney as well, is one of the my favourite arguments to have in our high school against Blackpool fans, our rivals, was who was the better player, Stanley Matthews or Tom Finney? And no one knew who was the better player out of me and my high school pals because none of us got the chance to see him play. But you were still fighting, fighting, arguing until you could argue no more about who was the better player purely because the love you have for your club is the same amount of love you have for them two players because they mean so much to each club. Yeah, some people can think, oh, it's Preston North End. It's just a myth. How was he really that good? But we're forgetting they were a top-flight team for all of his career. And Jack, he did have a rather impressive England career as well. Yeah, he, he had a pretty decent career. He scored a, a, quite a lot of goals. I think he's actually, is he top 10 goal scorers for England all-time, Luke? Yeah, 30 goals for England in 76 caps. And he was, he was actually part of an England team that beat Portugal 10-0, <laughs> which isn't that easy to do. Yeah, no, I mean, we've never been in the top division since Sir Tom Finney left. So the season he left, we got relegated and we haven't been in the top division since. So it, it, it certainly shows the gratitude that North End fans have towards Tom Finney, who is who is undoubtedly the best player to have played for the club. And are you proud of him for being a one-club man? I am. Yeah, there was stark interest from Palermo, the Italian team, but instead he decided to carry on playing for his, his home team, carry on playing for Preston North End, who may have not been winning all the titles, may have not been challenging towards the top end of the division, but he wanted to stay with his hometown team and he stayed ever since. Even when he did retire, he came watching games, he was still watching games, into his um, into his late 80s at Deepdale. So it's a credit to the man 
in, in what he, he has done for the city centre. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one you mentioned, Palermo, because they, they weren't even an amazing Italian team. You'd imagine they offered something like 10,000. You'd think they were some really glamorous destination, but they were hovering around the different divisions. However, this is where I shoot you Preston's fans down because he was not a one-club man. He was not, I'm sorry, he was not a one-club man. He made one appearance, one appearance for Lisbon Distillery in Northern Ireland. After 569 games for Preston, he came out of retirement. He'd been retired for three years, happily plumbing away. And he played in a European game in Northern Ireland against the one and only Benfica, um, <laughs> up against the likes of Eusebio, and somehow they drew 3-3 at home. But you cannot say that he is a one-club man. I mean, I hear. I, 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 if I asked the same question to you, who is great Liverpool's greatest player? You'd come out going, Steven Gerrard. He's Mr. Liverpool, but he, he went on and played for LA Galaxy, didn't he? Like, <laughs> he says did. So, do we think that the term one club man needs some rethinking? Should it be okay until he was 35, he was a one club man, and that's acceptable? <coughs> I think he does. I think nowadays it's. I think nowadays it's hard to find a one-club man. I mean, I'm shocked by the news about Tom Finney that he actually played for another team, but who would pass up the opportunity to play against the likes of Eusebio, I guess. But you mentioned Gerard, you've got the likes of Lampard, Wayne Rooney, who obviously wasn't a one-club man in the first place, but even he didn't. He's known as a big Manchester United man and he ended up playing for three or four clubs in the end. He's at Derby County now. So the term one-club man, it's a sticky one because how can you change it? But yeah, it should it should be something like there's a certain thing you know what a one club man is without being too picky. You know it's where someone's very loyal. No, I think I think a one club man is what it says on the tin. It's a player that's played for one club, and I think Tom Finney accounts that. I think him coming out to play in a little friend. It sounds like a little friendly match that nowadays would be game. counted as a pardon European game. It's a well, European yeah. game. However, he was that? retired. He was so I kind of there's that argument. Yeah, so he was retired. He came out of retirement. He's hardly like he's betrayed Preston or Fendi. Retired three years before. He probably just had a little cameo. I think he he counts as a one club man. It is a true story. However, there was a, an appeal a few years ago to actually find a photo of them playing for them. So. It seems like it's something they're trying desperately to verify because I imagine a lot of people don't believe them. And you mentioned his loyalty to Preston. Maybe he truly was because he abandoned them for the away leg and they lost 5-0 in Lisbon. So The Tom Finney effect. Benfica, yeah. So that is... Well, that's a good as point as any. Even after he's retired, that's a good as point as any. A good as point as any. Yeah, as to why he was an incredible player bringing downsides around him. I think we will focus just a bit at the end on your experiences as Preston fans because, let's face it, are there any experiences for you as a modern Preston fan that sort of stand out? I think every single time I walk up to that Deepdale Stadium stands out to me. Like It, it fills me with pride going to that stadium, um, knowing that me and Sean, we support our local team. We aren't we aren't, let's say, we aren't born in Leyland and support a big team like Liverpool. I wasn't born um, in Leyland. Well, you, we don't live in Leyland and grew up in Preston and 
support um, a big team. We support Preston or friend through thick and thin. But if you're talking about specific moments, one of maybe not a glorified moment, but it was Charlton 2 2. We drew at home in a season we finished 15th in League One. Charlton got promoted that day. And you know what was so special about that day? It was Graham Alexander's final game as a Preston North End player. Oh. I myself had the honour to walk him out for that game um, as the mascot. For his, I was actually his mascot no for his game before then. Uh, so he's, he's, I was his mascot for his second final game and his final game. Um, so we, I walk him out. Uh, he, gets, he got a guard of honour from the Charlton players and the PE players. And then he doesn't start the game. He gets subbed on with five minutes left. He had a horrifying injury. But because it was his final game in football, Graham Wesley said, we'll give you, we'll give you five minutes. And uh, we get a free kick. It was in added time, free kick. Alexander, uh, I was just reading his, uh, a book that he wrote. And it, his idea was to square it to Will Hayhurst to have the shot. And Paul Coots went, what are you doing? Just have a dig. And Alexander thought, right, okay, this is probably going to be my last touch, so let's have a dig. And what does he do? He bends it around the corner. It somehow finds its way in, into the bottom corner, and it is the most poetic end to, even though Graham Alexander was not a one-club man because he played for our arch-rivals Burnley in the Premier League, an absolute club legend who scored an, an incredible goal with his final ever-touching football at the age of 40 years old. It, it's a fantastic story. That is quite beautiful. Very poetic, as you say. And Sean? My happiest football memories also come from Deepdale and supporting North End. Trips to Wembley, watching us beat Swindon 4-0. Tommy Clark's last-minute headed winner against Blackpool. Joe Garner's playoff screamer against Rotherham, I think it was. These memories that you just you just don't can't experience from behind a TV screen. And I'm so so happy to have experienced live and to have witnessed at my local club. Yeah, my I've I've got two favourite memories as a Liverpool fan, but also oh Preston and my local team, they're my second club. Number one is watching Preston people go mad every time a manager or player joins Blackpool and the arts rival. <laughs> <laughs> and what an incredible memory. My first ever Preston game against Coventry where they equalised in the last minute one one. And a man oh. came up to me at half-time, and I was eating a Yorkie bar, and he said, oh, I quite like Yorkies, me. That's always stuck with me. <laughs> Horrifying that game, a... that, Luke. It was. was, it, was 98th minute, there was five added minutes, and <laughs> it played on to the 8th or ninth minute, and Coventry scored with the last kick of the game. It was a disgrace, I tell you now. Awful day. What a, what a first game to have. I think, think your memories of Preston North End are a bit different from mine and Jack's then. Oh yeah, um, I should mention I did not give the Yorkie bar to the man who came up to me. <laughs> I enjoyed all of it and I'm still enjoying chocolate to this day. And on that mouth-watering note, I think it's time to end our podcast here and fill up with petrol for the next leg of our football road trip. Where will it take us? Well, we don't have a clue. If you think your club has some fascinating stories to tell and you fancy coming on, you can fling us an email at footballroadtrip zero zero at gmail.com. I've been Luke Power. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed and see you next time.